It's time for episode 146 of the Clockwise podcast from Relay FM, recorded Wednesday, July 20th, 2016. Clockwise, four people, four technology topics, 30 minutes. Welcome back to Clockwise. It's like a political convention where the speeches are short and there are only four delegates. I'm Jason Snell, and across the internet from me, my co-host, representing the great state of Massachusetts, Dan Morin. I uh, would like a party platter. <laughs> How's it going? Hi, Jason. It's going okay. How are you doing? Uh, doing? Doing pretty well. So we will be done in 30 minutes. We promise we have two wonderful guests. I'm really looking forward to this one. To my left, well, you know him, you love him, you can't live without him. He's the well-known host of many podcasts. And uh, just a guy who uh, is on the internet. It's Merlin Mann. Hi. People love me. My, 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 my clocks are incredible. He has all the best clocks. Uh, to my left, our other guest, another returning guest, and the executive editor of Macworld, Susie Oaks. Hi, Susie. Hey, how's it going? I'm here at my house with my email server. <laughs> That's private. It's a private email server. I understand. So it's time for Clockwise. I will start with our first of four excellent topics. It is, in addition to being Political Convention Week number one, it is Comic-Con Week, the uh, comic and entertainment Industry will gather in San Diego starting on Thursday. And I thought I would do a themed question here. If you read comics, uh, what is your preferred method? Do you use an iPad? Are there apps that you use? And uh, I'll just throw that out there. If you are not a comic book aficionado, uh, you could answer this about like a per- preferred way to read kind of anything on if you if you do it on a digital device or not. Merlin? I am a comics reader, and my preferred method is to use Comixology on an iPad in 2012. <laughs> <laughs> because that's when I really love the app. I, I hope method, it comes method. back to its glory someday. Um, as far as digital stuff, I uh, I think like Dan and and maybe you, Jason, I, I like and recommend Marvel Unlimited. Basically, if you read more than two issues a month, it pays for itself. And if you can wait it out, it's worth it. For, for CBRs, CBZs, I use Chunky Comic Reader. That's really, um, look it up. Lots of great stuff. Honestly, these days I, I trade weight, as they say. Uh, I Marvel has uh, killed me. My enthusiasm <laughs> has waned. So I waited out. And I'll just go buy a few Squirrel Girls and bring that home. But I still love uh, patronizing my local comic store, which is Two Cats Comics at 320 West Portal Avenue. They are highly recommended. Uh, no copyright intended. <laughs> uh, good choices all around. Uh, I do uh, end up, like Merlin said, I'm a Marvel Unlimited user because of the just the the value, the immense value. And I, I don't need to be up to date. Every once in a while, I do see uh, stuff on some of the blogs I follow uh, about some big development in the world of comics. Uh, and I guess I've discovered that it doesn't it doesn't bother me that much to read them, especially for things that I know I'm never going to get to. Uh, and so Marvel having that sort of like, all right, it's a six month delay, but then you can read everything you want works out perfectly for me i really wish i've said this many times before but i'm gonna keep saying it until they do it really wish dc would do something similar because there are some dc titles i would like to read but frankly uh it's just not within my budget to to buy them issue by issue uh i like comiXology as well for some of the uh, other stuff in there though like merlin it it you know, maybe its heyday is slightly in the past. Um, and I do like getting paper, uh, you know, versions of some comics. I own all the uh, Matt Fraction, David Ahas, uh, 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 Hawkeye books in, in trade paperback um, because I really, the one thing I won't buy is really single issues. I just, I have a box here from like the mid 90s <laughs> full of all my comics and I don't know why. I don't mm. know why I have it. Please someone take it from me. Um, so yeah, digital comics. I'm a big fan. I love especially especially the sort of Netflix bingeable version of Marvel Unlimited. And uh, I really hope other other companies will follow suit in that regard. 
Cool. I don't read comics at all. You're why I had that whole parenthetical at the end. <laughs> yes. A lot of what you guys said just now was gibberish. <laughs> <laughs> that happens all the time, though, frankly. But they're coming for me. I do most of my readings these days in the Kindle app for iPhone, believe it or not. And I'm still really, really into Instapaper. Um, my son is four and a half, and we were at the library the other day, and he found a trade paperback of Ninjago that we got and he was really into it. So, um, you know, I, I think I'm going to, I'm writing down some of these things and maybe we'll look into like adventure time or something next because, uh, yeah, that would be fun. I, I like Comixology. I always bought stuff on the web anyway. So when they ripped all of the e-commerce out of the app, it didn't bother me too much. Although it still feels like an app that is missing an entire portion of it because it is. Uh, it's designed to have purchases in it. And because Amazon is disputing with Apple, uh, it doesn't. But still, I think it's the best app for reading. I love Marvel Unlimited as a service because, yeah, comics are kind of expensive. And for one flat fee, you can read a whole lot of catalog titles. And like Dan said, if it happened six months ago, fact is comics. Comics, comic stories aren't real. They don't impact the real world. What? If you're six what? months, I, sorry, I, if you're six months behind, <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Uh, and in fact, then you can like wait and read the kind of whole run of a story instead of getting it trickled out month to month. It's it's nice too. And uh, I also second uh, Merlin's recommendation for Chuck, Chunky Comic Reader, which is a great place to read uh, DRM free comics. And I know that that often means piracy, but actually, uh, if you didn't know, Comicsology lets you download uh, DRM free versions of um, most independent comics, non Marvel and DC comics. You can you can go there and just get a a, a, a backup copy that has no DRM and uh, some comic publishers will sell those to you direct. So uh, I love Chunky for that reason too. Anyway, thank you all. Uh, yay Comic Con. Glad I'm not there because there's too many people there. Um, Merlin, what's your topic? Well, it's an old chestnut of mine. Smart home, smart home automation stuff. I Because I'm a masochist, I recently dove back into the uh, Philips Hue system and have put many, many lights and settings uh, in the house, uh, I, I, maybe I'm not the, uh, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I still find this to be a very difficult and clunky process. Uh, the results are, can be very interesting and fun. I guess I'm curious. I, I feel like I brought this up on here before, but you look at how many people have something like Siri or Alexa in the house. And yet it feels like I, I, I look at my family and friends, most people I know who aren't total dorks. Their interest in home automation stops at basically their Comcast home security system and maybe a Nest thermostat. So my question is that in the next year, near to medium term, what's going to need to happen to make home automation tip with normal people? Uh, I think the fact that people you know who are not dorks are still into security systems and thermostats is pretty impressive since most of the people I know who are not into home automation, you know, they have, they have nothing. Um I also dip my toe into the Hue system. I think I've got five. I'm up to five lights now. I think the biggest problem and the thing that's going to need a lot of work is some sort of centralization of, you know, what for lack of a better term you might call command and control. Um, it's, you know, there's some cool things you can do with automation, but the fact that it means essentially changing a lot of muscle memory is pretty tough. Um, so for example, if you're not in a position to say rewire all the light switches in your rooms, that can be a bit of an obstacle because your muscle memory for going in and turning on the lights has probably been honed over your entire lifetime. Uh, so instead having to resort to using a phone, um, or even in some cases, voice control, I think that the, the voice control via the echo or Siri is much better. Um, but I think that the, uh, the idea of having to sort of rewire your brain to deal with that is, is tough in the, in, in the same way that, um, 
using your iPhone as, say, a universal remote control for all your entertainment stuff is kind of not an ideal solution, despite the fact that it does offer many advantages in terms of power and customization. It's inconvenient at times. Um, I think the things like home automation for lights are, are better, but uh, it's still kind of a tough thing. And I think that the other big problem is that it's nice that a lot of these things are built on on standards and offer APIs that let you have multiple solutions. But the problem with the lack of centralization is this means I can set up like home automation routines in like four different apps, uh, which could have conflicts. And when I when something doesn't work right, I have to go and check each of those apps and be like, okay, which of these is turning this random light on at this random time? So I, I think it's still something that's there for bleeding edge adopters. I think hopefully Apple working with its HomeKit stuff is going to be able to sort of put a lid on that a bit. But I'm also a little worried that it's just still going to kind of be the Wild West. Yeah, I agree with a lot of what Dan just said. Um, Well, I mean, security is okay, and the apps are pretty good now. It's not super confusing. Um, Houses are old, and installation can be a problem. So, like, I don't have enough wires in my doorbell to put in a smart doorbell. So I'd have to get, you know, someone who can do electric kind of stuff to come out and, like, totally redo that. Um, I can't even use the Instion hub, which is just a plug-in thing, because you have to be able to plug it into a wall and into my router. And I don't have a three-prong plug anywhere near my router. there's all these little problems and then of course (laughs) there's the thing where you're needlessly complicating something that used to be simple so yeah light switches lights need a switch you can engage with your hands as well as with your phone um you know my family two two out of three of us have phones on us all the time but the other one doesn't the nanny doesn't um so there's you know problems there but um merlin you mentioned that um people are into like security systems and thermostats, those both save you money. Like those both have kind of a built-in incentive. The security Mm -hmm. system, if you have one, you can save money on your home owner's insurance. And of course the thermostat can save you money on your heating and air. But, you know, having lights that can turn purple when someone tweets at me, like it's just, you know, it's, it's a nice to have. It's not really a need to have. And so like those barriers are what's holding me back. And the fact that, you know, there's just not a big enough reason to break down those barriers. I think that's what needs to change in the next year. For me, Merlin, the what needs to happen is that there needs to be compatibility because it's too fractured. That's the that's my mm-hmm. number one thing. I uh, I realized that I'm going to be writing about uh, iOS 10, which has the new Home app, and I realized I have no HomeKit compatible products in my house. Which is not to say that I don't have smart home products in my house, but none of them, so far as I can tell, will talk to HomeKit. So I'm going to have to go order. In fact, while Susie was talking, I just ordered a Philips Hue starter set because. <laughs> I need to have those things. And this is my point is I know that everybody's trying to play this game of brinksmanship where they're like, oh, no, you've got to have Apple's like you got to have special home kit hardware. We're not going to let you build bridges. And, and uh, uh, you know, everybody's trying to have competition here. Great. But it's bad for consumers when, you know, my light bulb over there isn't compatible with my light bulb over there. That's really dumb. So I think that's my number one thing. And as a homeowner, I would say, actually, the thing that Dan brought up that that is absolutely right, it's come up again and again, which is light switches. Like, if you plug in these smart things, you can't use your light switches unless you replace them with, like, weird smart switches, because uh, then you just kill the power to them, and they're not on the Wi-Fi anymore. I, I feel you on all of these because my house was, I think it was built in the 1630s. Uh, we don't have a way to get, we, can, we have like one wire that comes in the house. I've still got a fuse box. With actual fuses? We have oh glass fuses. We have glass fuses. Oh my God. No, we, we could never, we could never have one of those ding dong doorbells. We can't get a nest. None of that will work. I'll, I'll give you my tip uh, before, uh, well, 
I'll give you my tip, which is this thing um, called the Philips Hue Tap Switch, which has changed everything for us. So we bought a bunch of these for every room that they're in. That helps a lot. This does not get to the bigger problem, which I think you're all very uh, aptly addressing, which is this is just too freaking hard. We're still waiting for these to shake out. Somebody was asking me, my friend Todd was saying, should I get a drop, uh, what do they call it now, a Nest Cam? And I was like, you know, don't, because who knows what's going to happen with Nest. It's still shaking out. And I think we're still waiting for our, like the Eero Wi-Fi system I think is the beginning of something. They've taken this thing that's 15, 16 years old, made it easy. I think we're still waiting for that. We're waiting for that consolidation. So apart from my own bitches about how hard this stuff is to do, I think it's just still too daunting and, and dorky for normal people. But tap switch. Adding it. Thank you. Right now. <sighs> Good stuff. Okay, we are halfway through. We've got two more to go. Uh, but I want to tell you about our halftime sponsor. Our halftime sponsor this week is Linode. Linode is the company that makes the server that all of my stuff is on. Yes, all of my stuff. Linode offers a combination of high-performance SSD, Linux servers. They've got eight different data centers around the world. So it's a fantastic solution for you if you want to have a server on the internet. You can get it up and running in under a minute. Plans start at less than, or start at exactly $10 a month. That includes uh, two gigs of RAM on that server, which is pretty great. You can choose your resources, choose your Linux distro, choose your node location, all from a really simple uh, web-based manager tool. And once you're up and running, you can deploy, boot, and resize your server with just a couple of clicks. I've done it myself, and I don't know how to use Unix servers at all, and yet it I can totally make it happen. So Linode is great for, for all sorts of tasks. If you want to run a private Git server, host a large database, run a mail server, operate powerful applications, uh, set up a bunch of CMSs and run your own tech website and podcast network. Just examples. Uh, and they have industry-leading native SSD storage and access to a super-fast 40 gigabit internal network. So you will have all the power you need to get all of your tasks done. As a listener to this show, you can sign up and get a special deal. Go to linode.com slash clockwise and you'll support us and yourself because you'll get $20 toward any Linode plan. And there's a seven-day money-back guarantee. So there's really nothing to lose to give Linode a try. Go to linode.com slash clockwise to learn more, sign up, and take advantage of that $20 credit. Or if you don't enter slash clockwise, and why wouldn't you, uh, you can also just use a promo code clockwise20 at checkout. Thank you to Linode for supporting Halftime at Clockwise. Dan, it's your turn. So one of the big pieces of news to come out this week, uh, just in the last day or so, was that Twitter is opening up its verification process to allow all users at least to apply for verification, you know, get that little blue check mark. Uh, this comes on the heels of some, you know, very prominent harassment of Ghostbusters star Leslie Jones, uh, as well as a whole bunch of other, you know, endemic problems to Twitter over the past many, many years in dealing with abuse and harassment. My question for you guys is, do you think this is actually a step forward do you think is this is something that will help or is this just kind of a you know rearranging the deck chairs on the titanic well i think this is a good idea but i don't think it's going to help the harassment problem um i'm sure there's a lot of people who just haven't been tapped on the shoulder by twitter yet who still deserve to be verified and twitter should be more transparent about a lot of the things they do in my opinion so this is a good start i mean they're not being completely transparent about the process they're saying you know give us your name your phone number a you know picture and kind of giving you the guidelines for being verified, but then saying, and then we'll verify you or not. And if we don't, you can reapply in a month. So, you know, it's not completely transparent. I don't think it's going to be enough to stop the harassment. I don't know if it's, it's like a response to that, but I don't see how it would directly help that. But, you know, I could be wrong. 
so verification could be a tool in stopping harassment, but it would have to be something where you really could let anybody who is a regular verifiable human being give them enough information, whether that was verifying a credit card or an address or something like that, in order to get uh, that it isn't a burner account. And it's like more likely to be a real person because then you could basically say, if you're not somebody who we know is real, uh, by default, people can't see your tweets. I think something like that might be good. Um, and I'm not saying that you would have to use your real name and things like that, like on Facebook, but just it might be a way to stop some of it. But it would be one small part of a much larger issue. Also, they're not doing that. They're making this. They're still not doing that. It's, it seems much more complicated than that. There are lots of... Uh, there are, there are lots of ways to stop harassment on Twitter that people have thought of that seem to be well within Twitter's technical capability to do. Uh, I think uh, Randy Harper did a blog post that was pretty great that there was just a long list. She had like 25 things that Twitter could do to, that were just te- like technical tools that people have built into third-party apps and hacked together that uh, Twitter could just do uh, in order to do things like automatically block or mute people uh, at the option of users based on certain criteria uh, and scanning what people post for certain keywords and uh, grading them accordingly. But uh, Twitter hasn't done very much of that yet. So is this a step along the way? It kind of feels like not really. Maybe it's a sidestep or it's a half step forward, but they got a, they got a whole lot of work to do and they need to kind of uh, walk the walk a little bit because we haven't seen a lot from them about this. Yeah, I, I agree. This is uh, it's incredibly frustrating. It's beyond frustrating. It's unacceptable. And I, th- I think the part of this that feels like a misdirect, misdirection is that these are not new problems. I mean, Metafilter started in 1999, certainly on a different scale. But I mean, there have been communities dealing with this stuff for years. There have been fora that I was, like a forum software that I was running 15 years ago addressed some of these problems. And I realize it's a different amount of scale. The, the thing is, I, I don't think there are ways to implement these fixes, things like that wonderful article, which I hope you'll put in show notes about, how, you know, there are technological fixes for this. This is not a new problem. What's lacking is this clear sense of will. What's lacking is the clear sense that Twitter understands that this is an actual problem. I think the more troubling thing in some ways is that they continue to act like abuse is an occasional annoyance that rarely rises to their own bar for what's technically abuse. And they're trying to ride on some kind of legalistic line about that. And as a lot of people have said, this comes down to like a bad neighborhood problem. Like, is, is this the world that Twitter wants to create and maintain? I think they, they, yeah, there's a million ways they can fix this. They, they should have a way to figure that out. It's just that they clearly lack the, the political will or conscience to understand how bad this problem is. This is not just simply an annoyance. And that's what I would like to see. There's ways to fix this, but it all comes down to starting with a place of putting teeth into any policy by understanding that there are people whose lives are being ruined by this service that they themselves are not taking seriously. So that's what I'd like to see. Yeah, I think Merlin hits the nail on the head with that. It doesn't, it seems, they seem at times very wishy-washy about committing to this idea. Uh, and there have been, you know, almost recently, Jack Dorsey, the CEO, said, you know, this is a, a thing that we need to take more seriously. But again, like Merlin said, you need to put some action behind those words. Uh, this is a huge, huge problem for Twitter, and it isn't new, but it feels uncomfortable because a lot of the times it does seem like, well, is this running afoul of Twitter trying to make money in some ways? Does this seem counterproductive to their business model? I would certainly hope that's not the case because I feel like providing a space where people can talk without fear of having to be unduly harassed is not out of, you know, it's not unreasonable. Uh, And if anything, that should make your service better, not worse. So uh, I don't think verification is likely to stymie that at all. Uh, I do wish it was an option because 
I think that, you know, if it, if it achieved sufficient density, it might be one tool in that arsenal of doing that. But a lot more has to happen here behind the scenes and specifically in the way that Twitter is addressing this problem before they get anywhere near to this being remotely helpful is my feeling. But thanks for that. Uh, and our last topic is from Susie. So Jason mentioned iOS 10 earlier, and part of that is a new iPad app called Swift Playgrounds that Apple made for teaching programming to kids. This was made by software engineers, so it has, and they, they used, um, they, they worked with some educators to kind of come up with a curriculum for teaching software engineering, but um, it's trying to get you to, it's teaching you Swift, but it's also trying to get you to kind of think like a programmer and take apart problems like a programmer and look for patterns and all, all that fun stuff. So anyway, um, it's, it's aimed at kids, um, and it could be used in the classroom or outside. Um, my son is still very young, but I know um, Merlin and Jason, your kids are a little older than mine. Do you guys, and, um, and Dan, you might have you know, been in my same generation that was taught basic back in elementary school that never you know, ended up being basic programmers, but I still think <laughs> it had a lot of good teach- teachable moments in there. So what do you guys think? Um, should kids be offered computer science classes in like middle or high school, um, or should we more leave that as a, a self-taught model for, for nerdy kids who seek it out? and want to just learn that on their own. Well, a lot of great jobs out there for basic programmers, I should say that. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of great jobs. Look for those. Um, I also learned basic. Call me. I'm, I'm awesome at it. Uh, Swift Playgrounds really put me in the mind of uh, when my first computer uh, where you, you'd start it up, and even if you didn't have a disk in it, you could you could like just start typing uh, programs and, and and run them and play with them. And that was like the, the default thing you could do on a computer was type in programs and run them. And of course, modern computers aren't like that at all. And in fact, in some ways, it, there's, it's almost impossible to program them uh, without doing huge amounts of work. And so that's the thing I love about Swift Playgrounds. I think it's, I think it's so great, the fact that not only is it something that's going to be available for free that will let uh, kids you know, play around with, uh, with writing software, which there are, there are other apps that do that, but because Apple is making this effort to build all of these courses and that they're 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 fun and they look nice and yet they're also teaching fundamentals of programming i think it just in an ipad my my son's favorite device is his ipad he's also getting an ipad this fall uh, for uh, for school they're doing a one-to-one program for the seventh grade so i think it's great i i do think um that if we were building uh, up from zero today in terms of curricula for kids, um, you know, instead of just using what's been traditionally taught all along, that thinking in not not necessarily like learning to code for a platform, but like thinking in terms of uh, you know of, of loops and variables and things like that, that can, the way that uh, the, the almost like symbolic logic and and other things that are ways that programmers think, I think that's really as valuable as many of the other traditional topics. So yeah, I do think kids should be taught it. Not necessarily even because they're all going to become programmers, but because you want to expose them to these ideas and because the, a lot of the concepts in programming are about logic and reasoning and, and being methodical. And those can benefit kids even if they don't become programmers. So I'm very excited. I do think that kids should have the ability to, to learn this stuff on their own or in classroom situations. I have sort of a, I guess, a wonky sideways view of this because I, I think a lot about the mixed messages that we that we send to kids in many, many ways. And, and honestly, how the, so many of those mixed messages are also a struggle for me. So like right now, you know, everybody's, I'm not saying you're saying this, but a lot of people say, oh, you got to teach programming. That's going to be this silver bullet, technology, technology. And I think there's certainly a place for that. I think it's great for kids to be able to do that. But I worry about this mixed message we send about the whole screen time uh, boogeyman. And so like I, there's this part of me that thinks or hopes that 
my daughter is part of the last generation that will have screen time, quote unquote, thought of as this very dangerous thing that's going to eat your brain and turn you into a, you know, an unemployed, you know, garbage person. I, I really more and more really push back at that idea. So I think this stuff is good, but I think, <laughs> let it begin with me. I feel like part of what we need to do also is not turn this into just another homework assignment that people are going to groan about. If we let them use these devices in their own ways, and yes, monitor them, yes, be safe, but let them explore the technology. The people who are programmers today rarely learn that much about it in school. They learned it by tinkering. So I think getting the tinkering urge is a big part of it. Getting a lockdown PC at school where, where you learn how to make the turtle move may not be the best way to make a new generation of programmers. I think it starts with the parents and the teachers understanding that screen time is just time now. And we still have to be careful about it. But before we worry about people making programs or wanting to make programs or thinking like a programmer, I think we first have to just loosen our sphincter a little bit about the idea of people interacting with screens. Yeah, uh, so my schools did have some programming classes. I Like Susie said, I, I did learn basic in, in like middle school. I think I remember we going into the Apple II lab and just, you know, making them, of course, just scroll messages endlessly about how awesome we were. So um, we fun. Also, yeah, that was the, that was the best. Um, but my, my, compu- my high school did have some classes in, I think, I want to say Pascal, um, which some of my friends took. And actually, I did not. I didn't do any formalized programming until I got to college and did uh, Java. Which, yeah, that's really served me well. Um, Woohoo! So, <laughs> uh, I do think it should be an option, though. I mean, I agree that there's not only is it important figuring out, like, just logical ways to think about things but and, and deal with understanding how computers work. You're going to use technology every day. So kind of having some degree of literacy about that, I think, is really important. Um, I don't think it should be, like, a mandatory part of the curriculum or anything, but it certainly seems like... Uh, you know, it should be something that's available to people who are interesting because even though I think the tinkering impulse is such an important part of, you know, teaching yourself to program. And I, I taught myself later on as a web developer, I taught myself PHP to you know, from scratch because I, I needed to learn it. Um, but there should be a resource for people who want more formalized training in that because, you know, a lot of the people who are programmers, yeah, they taught themselves, but if they went off to college and, and studied computer science, they were taught to program by people. So uh, I think that should be a definite option for, for kids today. Yeah, I hadn't even um, thought about the whole screen time aspect. So that's that's a whole new wrinkle. But yeah, I, I mean, I think that just like how, you know, kids who learn music don't all become pro musicians and kids who play sports don't all become pro athletes. Um, there's teachable moments. There's definitely a lot of teachable moments in this. And I'm glad that Apple is stepping up to try to teach something to people. Have you, can I ask, have you have you played with it? It looks really fun. I did. Yeah, it's really, really fun. It's super cute. I wrote a little feature about it for Macworld, and it was, it's a lot of fun. We're going to follow up again in the fall when um, they're, they're using it in classrooms. But the, the preview is with um, iOS 10 beta. When you install the public beta, you get a preview, and the first set of lessons is in there in like two playgrounds. So it's, there's going to be more, but what's there already is super fun. You should check it out. All right. Uh, we've reached the end. There's just enough time for a quick bonus topic. My bonus topic this week for all of you is this. Uh, do you have, or did you have, if you've already gone, a summer vacation destination this year? It's vacation time. Merlin? <laughs> I don't know how we dodged this bullet, but for some reason we don't have to visit our family this year. So we're exploring some California things. My favorite discovery so far is this is the year that my family discovered Six Flags. 
uh, up in, uh, I guess, in Vallejo. Yep. And the thing is, I'm the only roller coaster rider in the family. So what I would like is for my family to go somewhere else, please and thank you. And I will spend two days riding the Joker roller coaster over and over. <laughs> uh, I am making my usual summer pilgrimage up to the Finger Lakes region of New York, where my uncle has a nice little cottage on a lake. And I hopefully get to spend a week there visiting with my family, which I, I really enjoy because I don't get to see them that much. We did the family visit last month. We spent eight nights in four different places in the Midwest um, visiting all the family. So, But then um, next week, we actually get to do a vacation just for ourselves. And we're going up to Orcas Island off uh, Seattle. And I've never been there, and I'm super, super excited. And for me, hey, everybody, it's Comic-Con week. I'm going to San Diego Woo! next week after everybody left. Then I'll be there. It's <laughs> going to be great. There's going to be nobody there. San Diego is a beautiful city, and it's better when there's no Comic-Con in it to fill up the space. That's it. We're done. Dan, um, this was a pretty good one, I thought. Yeah, unlike most of the rest of those. Yeah, she's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> up here. Death March. But here, this one, Woo! we got it. Merlin, that bullet. Merlin, man, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Susie Oaks, thank you for joining us once again. Always a delight. Thank you, party people. And Dan... Uh, we'll be back next week with another edition. I'll be I'll be on the way to San Diego at that point, but I'll still be on the show. Uh, that's what? commitment, folks. Uh, another edition of Clockwise. But until then, we remind you: watch what you say, and keep watching the clock. Bye, everybody. Bye. Garbage truck. Garbage, garbage truck. truck. Yeah, yeah. Garbage. <laughs> I felt bad when Merlin said unemployed garbage people. I'm like, there are employed garbage people right inside from me. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm being employment normative. <laughs> and keep watching the clock. And the garbage man. Beep, 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 beep. <laughs>